0: Observance of the Law In 59 BC, the future Queen Cleopatra of Egypt, then ten years old, witnessed the overthrow and banishment of her father, Ptolemy XII, at the hand of his eldest daughters, her own sisters. One of the daughters, Berenice, emerged as the leader of the rebellion, and to ensure that she would now rule Egypt alone, she imprisoned her other sisters and murdered her own husband. This may have been necessary as a practical step to secure her rule, but that a member of the royal family, a queen no less, would so overtly exact such violence on her own family, horrified her subjects and stirred up powerful opposition. Four years later, this opposition was able to return Ptolemy to power, and he promptly had Berenice and the other elder sisters beheaded. In 51 B.C., Ptolemy died, leaving four remaining children as heirs. As was the tradition in Egypt, the eldest son, Ptolemy XIII, only ten at the time, married the elder sister, Cleopatra, now eighteen, and the couple took the throne together as king and queen. None of the four children felt satisfied with this. Everyone, including Cleopatra, wanted more power a struggle emerged between Cleopatra and Ptolemy, each trying to push the other to the side. In 48 BC, with the help of a government faction that feared Cleopatra's ambitions, Ptolemy was able to force his sister to flee the country, leaving himself as sole ruler. In exile, Cleopatra schemed. She wanted to rule alone and to restore Egypt to its past glory, a goal she felt none of her other siblings could achieve, yet as long as they were alive she could not realize her dream. And the example of Berenice had made it clear that no one would serve a queen who was seen murdering her own kind. Even Ptolemy XIII had not dared murder Cleopatra, although he knew she would plot against him from abroad. Within a year after Cleopatra's banishment, the Roman dictator Julius Caesar arrived in Egypt, determined to make the country a Roman colony. Cleopatra saw her chance. Re-entering Egypt in disguise, she traveled hundreds of miles to reach Caesar in Alexandria. Legend has it that she had herself smuggled into his presence rolled up inside a carpet, which was gracefully unfurled at his feet, revealing the young queen. Cleopatra immediately went to work on the Roman. She appealed to his love of spectacle and his interest in Egyptian history and poured on her feminine charms. Caesar soon succumbed and restored Cleopatra to the throne. Cleopatra's siblings seethed. She had outmaneuvered them. Ptolemy XIII would not wait to see what happened next. From his palace in Alexandria, he summoned a great army to march on the city and attack Caesar. In response, Caesar immediately put Ptolemy and the rest of the family under house arrest. But Cleopatra's younger sister, Arsinoe, escaped from the palace and placed herself at the head of the approaching Egyptian troops, proclaiming herself Queen of Egypt. Now Cleopatra finally saw her chance. She convinced Caesar to release Ptolemy from house arrest under the agreement that he would broker a truce. Of course, she knew he would do the opposite, that he would fight Arsinoe for control of the Egyptian army. But this was to Cleopatra's benefit, for it would divide the royal family. Better still, it would give Caesar the chance to defeat and kill her siblings in battle. Reinforced by troops from Rome, Caesar swiftly defeated the rebels. In the Egyptians' retreat, Ptolemy drowned in the Nile. Caesar captured Arsinoe and had her sent to Rome as a prisoner. He also executed the numerous enemies who had conspired against Cleopatra and imprisoned others who had opposed her. To reinforce her position as uncontested queen, Cleopatra now married the only sibling left, Ptolemy XIV only eleven at the time, and the weakest of the lot. Four years later, Ptolemy mysteriously died of poison. In 41 B.C., Cleopatra employed on a second Roman leader, Mark Antony, the same tactic she had used so well on Julius Caesar. After seducing him, she hinted to him that her sister Arsinoe, still a prisoner in Rome, had conspired to destroy him. Mark Antony believed her and promptly had Arsinoe executed, thereby getting rid of the last of the siblings who had posed such a threat to Cleopatra. Interpretation Legend has it that Cleopatra succeeded through her seductive charms, but in reality, her power came from an ability to get people to do her bidding without realizing they were being manipulated. Caesar and Antony not only rid her of her most dangerous siblings, Ptolemy Thirteenth and Arsinoe, they decimated all of her enemies in both the government and the military. The two men became her cat's paws. They entered the fire for her, did the ugly but necessary work while shielding her from appearing as the destroyer of her siblings and fellow Egyptians. And in the end, both men acquiesced to her desire to rule Egypt not as a Roman colony, but as an independent allied kingdom. And they did all this for her without realizing how she had manipulated them. This was persuasion of the subtlest and most powerful kind. A queen must never dirty her hands with ugly tasks, nor can a king appear in public with blood on his face. Yet power cannot survive without the constant squashing of enemies. There will always be dirty little tasks that have to be done to keep you on the throne. Like Cleopatra, you need a cat's paw. This will usually be a person from outside your immediate circle, who will therefore be unlikely to realize how he or she is being used. You will find these dupes everywhere. People who enjoy doing you favors, especially if you throw them a minimal bone or two in exchange. But as they accomplish tasks that may seem to them innocent enough, or at least completely justified, they are actually clearing the field for you, spreading the information you feed them, undermining people they do not realize are your rivals, inadvertently furthering your cause, dirtying their hands while yours remains spotless. Keys to Power As a leader, you may imagine that constant diligence and the appearance of working harder than anyone else signify power. Actually, though, they have the opposite effect. They imply weakness. Why are you working so hard? Perhaps you are incompetent and have to put in extra effort just to keep up. Perhaps you are one of those people who does not know how to delegate and has to meddle in everything. The truly powerful, on the other hand, seem never to be in a hurry or overburdened. While others work their fingers to the bone, they take their leisure. They know how to find the right people to put in the effort while they save their energy and keep their hands out of the fire. Similarly, you may believe that by taking on the dirty work yourself, Involving yourself directly in unpleasant actions, you impose your power and instill fear. In fact, you make yourself look ugly and abusive of your high position. Truly powerful people keep their hands clean. Only good things surround them, and the only announcements they make are of glorious achievements. You will often find it necessary, of course, to expend energy, or to effect an evil but necessary action. But you must never appear to be this action's agent. Find a cat's paw. Develop the arts of finding, using, and, in time, getting rid of these people when their cat's paw role has been fulfilled. The easiest and most effective way to use a cat's paw is often to plant information with him that he will then spread to your primary target. False or planted information is a powerful tool, especially if spread by a dupe whom no one suspects. You will find it very easy to play innocent and disguise yourself as the source. Law 27 Play on people's need to believe to create a cult-like following. Judgment People have an overwhelming desire to believe in something. Become the focal point of such desire by offering them a cause, a new faith to follow. Keep your words vague but full of promise. Emphasize enthusiasm over rationality and clear thinking. Give your new disciples rituals to perform. Ask them to make sacrifices on your behalf. In the absence of organized religion and grand causes, your new belief system will bring you untold power. The Science of Charlatanism, or How to Create a Cult in Five Easy Steps In searching, as you must, for the methods that will gain you the most power for the least effort, you will find the creation of a cult-like following one of the most effective. Having a large following opens up all sorts of possibilities for deception. Not only will your followers worship you, they will defend you from your enemies and will voluntarily take on the work of enticing others to join your fledgling cult. This kind of power will lift you to another realm. You will no longer have to struggle or use subterfuge to enforce your will. You are adored and can do no wrong. You might think it's a gargantuan task to create such a following, but in fact it is fairly simple. As humans, we have a desperate need to believe in something, anything. This makes us eminently gullible. We simply cannot endure long periods of doubt or of the emptiness that comes from a lack of something to believe in. Dangle in front of us some new cause, elixir, get-rich-quick scheme, or the latest technological trend or art movement, and we leap from the water as one to take the bait. Look at history. The chronicles of the new trends and cults that have made a mass following for themselves could fill a library. After a few centuries, a few decades, a few years, a few months, they generally look ridiculous. But at the time, they seemed so attractive, so transcendental, so divine. Always in a rush to believe in something, we will manufacture saints and faiths out of nothing. Do not let this gullibility go to waste. Make yourself the object of worship. Make people form a cult around you. The great European charlatans of the 16th and 17th centuries mastered the art of cult-making. They lived, as we do now, in a time of transformation. Organized religion was on the wane, science on the rise. People were desperate to rally around a new cause or faith. The charlatans had begun by peddling health elixirs and alchemic shortcuts to wealth. Moving quickly from town to town, they originally focused on small groups, until, by accident, they stumbled on a truth of human nature. The larger the group they gathered around themselves, the easier it was to deceive. The charlatan would station himself on a high wooden platform, hence the term "montebank." and crowds would swarm around him. In a group setting, people were more emotional, less able to reason. Had the charlatan spoken to them individually, they might have found him ridiculous, but lost in a crowd. They got caught up in a communal mood of rapt attention. It became impossible for them to find the distance to be skeptical. Any deficiencies in the charlatan's ideas were hidden by the zeal of the mass. Passion and enthusiasm swept through the crowd like a contagion and they reacted violently to anyone who dared to spread a seed of doubt. Both consciously studying this dynamic over decades of experiment and spontaneously adapting to these situations as they happened, the charlatans perfected the science of attracting and holding a crowd, molding the crowd into followers and the followers into a cult. The gimmicks of the charlatans may seem quaint today, But there are thousands of charlatans among us still, using the same tried and true methods their predecessors refined centuries ago, only changing the names of their elixirs and modernizing the look of their cults. We find these latter-day charlatans in all arenas of life—business, fashion, politics, art. Many of them perhaps are following in the charlatan tradition without having any knowledge of its history. But you can be more systematic and deliberate. Simply follow the five steps of cult-making that our charlatan ancestors perfected over the years. Step 1. Keep it vague. Keep it simple. To create a cult, you must first attract attention. This you should do not through actions which are too clear and readable but through words, which are hazy and deceptive. Your initial speeches, conversations, and interviews must include two elements. On the one hand, the promise of something great and transformative, and on the other, a total vagueness. This combination will stimulate all kinds of hazy dreams in your listeners who will make their own connections and see what they want to see. As a corollary to its vagueness, your appeal should also be simple. Most people's problems have complex causes. Deep-rooted neurosis, interconnected social factors, roots that go way back in time and are exceedingly hard to unravel. Few, however, have the patience to deal with this. Most people want to hear that a simple solution will cure their problems. The ability to offer this kind of solution will give you great power and build you a following. Step 2. Emphasize the visual and the sensual over the intellectual. Once people have begun to gather around you, two dangers will present themselves, boredom and skepticism. Boredom will make people go elsewhere. Skepticism will allow them the distance to think rationally about whatever it is you are offering, blowing away the mist you have artfully created and revealing your ideas for what they are. You need to amuse the bored, then ward off the cynics. The best way to do this is through theater or other devices of its kind. Surround yourself with luxury. Dazzle your followers with visual splendor. Fill their eyes with spectacle. Not only will this keep them from seeing the ridiculousness of your ideas, the holes in your belief system, it will also attract more attention, more followers. Appeal to all the senses. Use incense for scent, soothing music for hearing, colorful charts and graphs for the eye. You might even tickle the mind, perhaps by using new technological gadgets to give your cult a pseudo-scientific veneer, as long as you do not make anyone really think. Use the exotic, distant cultures, strange customs to create theatrical effects and to make the most banal and ordinary affairs seem signs of something extraordinary. Step 3. Borrow the forms of organized religion to structure the group. Your cult-like following is growing. It is time to organize it. Find a way, both elevating and comforting. Organized religions have long held unquestioned authority for large numbers of people and continue to do so in our supposedly secular age. And even if the religion itself has faded some, its forms will resonate with power. The lofty and holy associations of organized religion can be endlessly exploited. Create rituals for your followers. Organize them into a hierarchy, ranking them in grades of sanctity and giving them names and titles that resound with religious overtones. Ask them for sacrifices that will fill your coffers and increase your power. To emphasize your gathering's quasi-religious nature, talk and act like a prophet you are not a dictator after all you are a priest a guru a sage a shaman or any other word that hides your real power in the mist of religion step four disguise your source of income your group has grown and you have structured it in a church-like form your coffers are beginning to fill with your followers money You must never be seen as hungry for money and the power it brings. It is at this moment that you must disguise the source of your income. Your followers want to believe that if they follow you, all sorts of good things will fall into their lap. By surrounding yourself with luxury, you become living proof of the soundness of your belief system. Never reveal that your wealth actually comes from your followers' pockets. Instead, make it seem to come from the truth of your methods. Followers will copy your each and every move in the belief that it will bring them the same results, and their imitative enthusiasm will blind them to the charlatan nature of your wealth. Step 5. Set up an us versus them dynamic. The group is now large and thriving a magnet attracting more and more particles. If you are not careful though, inertia will set in and time and boredom will demagnetize the group. To keep your followers united, you must now do what all religions and belief systems have done, create an us versus them dynamic. First, make sure your followers believe they are part of an exclusive club unified by a bond of common goals. Then, to strengthen this bond, manufacture the notion of a devious enemy out to ruin you. There is a force of non-believers that will do anything to stop you. Any outsider who tries to reveal the charlatan nature of your belief system can now be described as a member of this devious force. If you have no enemies, invent one. Given a straw man to react against, your followers will tighten and cohere. They have your cause to believe in, and infidels to destroy. Observance of the Law In the year 1653, a 27-year-old Milan man named Francesco Giuseppe Bori claimed to have had a vision. He went around town telling one and all, That the archangel michael had appeared to him and announced that he had been chosen to be the capitano generale of the army of the new pope an army that would seize and revitalize the world the archangel had further revealed that bori now had the power to see people's souls and that he would soon discover the philosopher's stone a long sought after substance that could change base metals into gold friends and acquaintances who heard Bordy explain the vision, and who witnessed the change that had come over him, were impressed, for Bordy had previously devoted himself to a life of wine, women, and gambling. Now he gave all that up, plunging himself into the study of alchemy, and talking only of mysticism and the occult. The transformation was so sudden and miraculous, and Bodi's words were so filled with enthusiasm that he began to create a following. Unfortunately, the Italian Inquisition began to notice him as well. They prosecuted anyone who delved into the occult. So he left Italy and began to wander Europe, from Austria to Holland, telling one and all that, to those who follow me, all joy shall be granted. Wherever Bori stayed, he attracted followers. His method was simple. He spoke of his vision which had grown more and more elaborate, and offered to look into the soul of anyone who believed him, and they were many. Seemingly, in a trance, he would stare at this new follower for several minutes, then claim to have seen the person's soul, degree of enlightenment, and potential for spiritual greatness. If what he saw showed promise, he would add the person to his growing order of disciples an honor, indeed. The cult had six degrees, into which the disciples were assigned according to what Bori had glimpsed in their souls. With work and total devotion to the cult, they could graduate to a higher degree. Bori, whom they called His Excellency and Universal Doctor, demanded from them the strictest vows of poverty. All the goods and monies they possessed, had to be turned over to him. But they did not mind handing over their property, for Bori had told them, I shall soon bring my chemical studies to a happy conclusion by the discovery of the philosopher's stone, and by this means we shall all have as much gold as we desire. Given his growing wealth, Bori began to change his style of living, Renting the most splendid apartment in the city, into which he had temporarily settled, he would furnish it with fabulous furniture and accessories, which he had begun to collect. He would drive through the city in a coach studded with jewels, with six magnificent black horses at its head. He never stayed too long in one place, and when he disappeared, saying he had more souls to gather into his flock, his reputation only grew in his absence. He became famous, although, in fact, he had never done a single concrete thing. From all over Europe, the blind, the crippled, and the desperate came to visit Bori, for word had spread that he had healing powers. He asked no fee for his services, which only made him seem more marvelous, and indeed some claimed that in this or that city he had performed a miracle cure. By only hinting at his accomplishments, he encouraged people's imaginations to blow them up to fantastic proportions. His wealth, for example, actually came from the vast sums he was collecting from his increasingly select group of rich disciples, yet it was presumed that he had, in fact, perfected the philosopher's stone. The Church continued to pursue him, denouncing him for heresy and witchcraft. And Borey's response to these charges was a dignified silence. This only enhanced his reputation and made his followers more passionate. Only the great are persecuted after all. How many understood Jesus Christ in his own time? Bori did not have to say a word. His followers now called the Pope the Antichrist. And so Borey's power grew and grew until one day, he left the city of Amsterdam, where he had settled for a while, absconding with huge sums of borrowed money and diamonds that had been entrusted to him. He claimed to be able to remove the flaws from diamonds through the power of his gifted mind. Now he was on the run. The Inquisition eventually caught up with him, and for the last twenty years of his life, he was imprisoned in Rome. But so great was the belief in his occult powers that to his dying day he was visited by wealthy believers, including Queen Christina of Sweden. Supplying him with money and materials, these visitors allowed him to continue his search for the elusive Philosopher's Stone. Interpretation Before he formed his cult, Bodhi seems to have stumbled on a critical discovery. Tiring of his life of debauchery, he had decided to give it up and to devote himself to the occult, a genuine interest of his. He must have noticed, however, that when he alluded to a mystical experience rather than physical exhaustion, as the source of his conversion, people of all classes wanted to hear more. Realizing the power he could gain by ascribing the change to something external and mysterious, he went further with his manufactured visions. The grander the vision and the more sacrifices he asked for, the more appealing and believable his story seemed to become. Remember, people are not interested in the truth about change. They do not want to hear that it has come from hard work or from anything as banal as exhaustion, boredom, or depression. They are dying to believe in something romantic, otherworldly. They want to hear of angels and out-of-body experiences. Indulge them. Hint at the mystical source of some personal change. Wrap it in ethereal colors and a cult-like following will form around you. Adapt to people's needs. The Messiah must mirror the desires of his followers and always aim high. The bigger and bolder your illusion, the better. Law 28. Enter action with boldness. Judgment. If you are unsure of a course of action, do not attempt it. Your doubts and hesitations will infect your execution. Timidity is dangerous. Better to enter with boldness. Any mistakes you commit through audacity are easily corrected with more audacity. Everyone admires the bold. No one honors the timid. Boldness and hesitation. A brief psychological comparison. Boldness and hesitation elicit very different psychological responses in their targets. Hesitation puts obstacles in your path. Boldness eliminates them. Once you understand this, you will find it essential to overcome your natural timidity and practice the art of audacity. The following are among the most pronounced psychological effects of boldness and timidity. The bolder the lie, the better. We all have weaknesses, and our efforts are never perfect. But entering action with boldness has the magical effect of hiding our deficiencies. Con artists know that the bolder the lie, the more convincing it becomes. The sheer audacity of the story makes it more credible, distracting attention from its inconsistencies. When putting together a con, or entering any kind of negotiation, go further than you planned. Ask for the moon, and you will be surprised how often you get it. Lions circle the hesitant prey. People have a sixth sense for the weaknesses of others. If, in a first encounter, you demonstrate your willingness to compromise, back down, and retreat, you bring out the lion even in people who are not necessarily bloodthirsty. Everything depends on perception, and once you are seen as the kind of person who quickly goes on the defensive, who is willing to negotiate and be amenable, you will be pushed around without mercy. Boldness strikes fear. Fear creates authority. The bold move makes you seem larger and more powerful than you are. If it comes suddenly, with the stealth and swiftness of a snake, it inspires that much more fear. By intimidating with a bold move, you establish a precedent. In every subsequent encounter, people will be on the defensive, in terror of your next strike. Going halfway, with a half a heart, digs the deeper grave. If you enter an action with less than total confidence, you set up obstacles in your own path. When a problem arises, you will grow confused, seeing options where there are none, and inadvertently creating more problems still. Retreating from the hunter, the timid hare scurries more easily into his snares. Hesitation creates gaps. Boldness obliterates them. When you take time to think, to hem and haw, you create a gap that allows others time to think as well. Your timidity infects people with awkward energy, elicits embarrassment. Doubt springs up on all sides. Boldness destroys such gaps. The swiftness of the move and the energy of the action leave others no space to doubt and worry. In seduction, hesitation is fatal. It makes your victim conscious of your intentions. The bold move crowns seduction with triumph. It leaves no time for reflection. Audacity separates you from the herd. Boldness gives you presence and makes you seem larger than life. The timid fade into the wallpaper. The bold draw attention, and what draws attention draws power. We cannot keep our eyes off the audacious. We cannot wait to see their next bold move. Observance of the Law In 1514, the 22-year-old Pietro Aratino was working as a lowly assistant scullion to a wealthy Roman family. He had ambitions of greatness as a writer, to inflame the world with his name, but how could a mere lackey hope to realize such dreams? That year, Pope Leo X received from the King of Portugal an embassy that included many gifts, most prominent among them a great elephant, the first in Rome since imperial times. The pontiff adored this elephant and showered it with attention and gifts. But despite his love and care, the elephant, which was called Anno, became deathly ill. The pope summoned doctors who administered a 500-pound purgative to the elephant, but all to no avail. The animal died, and the pope went into mourning. To console himself, he summoned the great painter Raphael and ordered him to create a life-sized painting of Anno above the animal's tomb, bearing the inscription, What Nature Took Away, Raphael Has With His Art Restored. Over the next few days, a pamphlet circulated throughout Rome that caused great merriment and laughter. Entitled, The Last Will and Testament of the Elephant Anno, it read in part, To my heir, the Cardinal Santa Croce, I give my knees, so that he can imitate my genuflections. To my heir, Cardinal Santi Quattro, I give my jaws, so that he can more readily devour all of Christ's revenues. To my heir, Cardinal Medici, I give my ears, so that he can hear everyone's doings. To Cardinal Grassi, who had a reputation for lechery, the elephant bequeathed the appropriate Oversized part of his own anatomy. On and on the anonymous pamphlet went, sparing none of the great in Rome, not even the Pope. With each one, it took aim at their best known weakness. The pamphlet ended with verse See to it that Adetino is your friend, for he is a bad enemy to have. His words alone could ruin the high Pope, so God guard everyone. From his tongue. Interpretation. With one short pamphlet, Aratino, son of a poor shoemaker and a servant himself, hurled himself to fame. Everyone in Rome rushed to find out who this daring young man was. Even the Pope, amused by his audacity, sought him out and ended up giving him a job in the papal service. Over the years, he came to be known as the Scourge of Princes, and his biting tongue earned him the respect and fear of the Great, from the King of France to the Habsburg Emperor. The Aretino strategy is simple. When you are as small and obscure as David was, you must find a Goliath to attack. The larger the target, the more attention you gain. The bolder the attack the more you stand out from the crowd and the more admiration you earn. Society is full of those who think daring thoughts but lack the guts to print and publicize them. Voice what the public feels. The expression of shared feelings is always powerful. Search out the most prominent target possible and sling your boldest shot. The world will enjoy the spectacle and will honor the underdog. You, that is, with glory and power. Keys to Power Most of us are timid. We want to avoid tension and conflict, and we want to be liked by all. We may contemplate a bold action, but we rarely bring it to life. We are terrified of the consequences, of what others might think of us, of the hostility we will stir up if we dare go beyond our usual place. Although we may disguise our timidity as a concern for others, a desire not to hurt or offend them, in fact, it is the opposite. We are really self-absorbed, worried about ourselves and how others perceive us. Boldness, on the other hand, is outer-directed and often makes people feel more at ease since it is less self-conscious and less repressed. Few are born bold. Even Napoleon had to cultivate the habit on the battlefield, where he knew it was a matter of life and death. In social settings, he was awkward and timid, but he overcame this and practiced boldness in every part of his life because he saw its tremendous power, how it could literally enlarge a man, even one who, like Napoleon, was in fact conspicuously small. You must practice and develop your boldness. You will often find uses for it. The best place to begin is often the delicate world of negotiation, particularly those discussions in which you are asked to set your own price. How often we put ourselves down by asking for too little. When Christopher Columbus proposed that the Spanish court finance his voyage to the Americas, he also made the insanely bold demand that he be called Grand Admiral of the Ocean, The court agreed. The price he set was the price he received. He demanded to be treated with respect, and so he was. Understand, if boldness is not natural, neither is timidity. It is an acquired habit, picked up out of a desire to avoid conflict. If timidity has taken hold of you, then root it out. Your fears of the consequences of a bold action are way out of proportion to reality. And in fact, the consequences of timidity are worse. Your value is lowered and you create a self-fulfilling cycle of doubt and disaster. Remember, the problems created by an audacious move can be disguised, even remedied, by more and greater audacity. Law 29. Plan all the way to the end. Judgment. The ending is everything. Plan all the way to it, taking into account all the possible consequences, obstacles, and twists of fortune that might reverse your hard work and give the glory to others. By planning to the end, You will not be overwhelmed by circumstances, and you will know when to stop. Gently guide fortune and help determine the future by thinking far ahead. Transgression of the Law In 1510, a ship set out from the island of Hispaniola, now Haiti and the Dominican Republic, for Venezuela, where it was to rescue a besieged Spanish colony several miles out of port a stowaway climbed out of a provision chest vasco nunez de balboa a noble spaniard who had come to the new world in search of gold but had fallen into debt and had escaped his creditors by hiding in the chest Balboa had been obsessed with gold ever since Columbus had returned to Spain from his voyages with tales of a fabulous but as yet undiscovered kingdom called El Dorado. Balboa was one of the first adventurers to come in search of Columbus's land of gold, and he had decided from the beginning that he would be the one to find it through sheer audacity and single mindedness. Now that he was free of his creditors, nothing would stop him. Unfortunately, the ship's owner, a wealthy jurist named Francisco Fernandez de Encisco, was furious when told of the stowaway, and he ordered that Balboa be left on the first island they came across. Before they found any island, however, Encisco received news that the colony he was to rescue had been abandoned. This was Balboa's chance. He told the sailors of his previous voyages to Panama and of the rumors he had heard of gold in the area. The excited sailors convinced Encisco to spare Balboa's life and to establish a colony in Panama. Weeks later, they named their new settlement Darien. Darien's first governor was Encisco, but Balboa was not a man to let others steal the initiative. He campaigned against Francisco among the sailors, who eventually made it clear that they preferred him as governor. Ancisco fled to Spain, fearing for his life. Months later, when a representative of the Spanish crown arrived to establish himself as the new official governor of Darien, he was turned away. On his return voyage to Spain, this man drowned. The drowning was accidental, but under Spanish law. Balboa had murdered the governor and usurped his position. Balboa's bravado had got him out of scrapes before, but now his hopes of wealth and glory seemed doomed. To lay claim to El Dorado, should he discover it, he would need the approval of the Spanish king, which, as an outlaw, he would never receive. There was only one solution. Panamanian Indians had told Balboa of a vast ocean on the other side of the Central American isthmus, and had said that by traveling south upon this western coast, he would reach a fabulous land of gold, called by a name that to his ears sounded like Biru. Balboa decided he would cross the treacherous jungles of Panama and become the first European to bathe his feet in this new ocean. From there, he would march on El Dorado. If he did this on Spain's behalf, he would obtain the eternal gratitude of the king, and would secure his own reprieve, only he had to act before Spanish authorities came to arrest him. In 1513, then, Balboa set out with 190 soldiers. Halfway across the Isthmus, some 90 miles wide at that point, only 60 soldiers remained, many having succumbed to the harsh conditions the blood-sucking insects, the torrential rainfall, fever. Finally, from a mountaintop, Balboa became the first European to lay eyes on the Pacific Ocean. Days later, he marched in his armor into its waters, bearing the banner of Castile and claiming all its seas, lands, and islands in the name of the Spanish throne. Indians from the area greeted Balboa with gold, Jewels and precious pearls, the like of which he had never seen. When he asked where these had come from, the Indians pointed south to the land of the Incas. But Balboa had only a few soldiers left. For the moment, he decided, he should return to Darien, send the jewels and gold to Spain as a token of goodwill, and ask for a large army to aid him in the conquest of El Dorado. When news reached Spain of Balboa's bold crossing of the Isthmus, his discovery of the western ocean, and his planned conquest of El Dorado, the former criminal, became a hero. He was instantly proclaimed governor of the new land. But before the king and queen received word of his discovery, they had already sent a dozen ships under the command of a man named Pedro Villa, Davia, Pedrerius with orders to arrest Balboa for murder and to take command of the colony. By the time Pedrarias arrived in Panama, he had learned that Balboa had been pardoned and that he was to share the governorship with the former outlaw. All the same, Balboa felt uneasy. Gold was his dream, Eldorado his only desire. In pursuit of this goal, he had nearly died many times over, and to share the wealth and glory with a newcomer would be intolerable. He also soon discovered that Pedrerius was a jealous, bitter man, and equally unhappy with the situation. Once again, the only solution for Balboa was to seize the initiative by proposing to cross the jungle with a larger army, carrying shipbuilding materials and tools. Once on the Pacific coast, he would create an armada with which to conquer the Incas. Surprisingly enough, Pedrarius agreed to the plan, perhaps sensing it would never work. Hundreds died in this second march through the jungle, and the timber they carried rotted in the torrential rains. Balboa, as usual, was undaunted. No power in the world could thwart his plan. And on arriving at the Pacific, he began to cut down trees for new lumber. But the men remaining to him were too few and too weak to mount an invasion, and once again Balboa had to return to Darien. Pedrarius had, in any case, invited Balboa back to discuss a new plan, and on the outskirts of the settlement, the explorer was met by Francisco Pizarro, an old friend who had accompanied him on his first crossing of the Isthmus. But this was a trap. Leading one hundred soldiers, Pizarro surrounded his former friend, arrested him, and returned him to Badrarius, who tried him on charges of rebellion. A few days later, Balboa's head fell into a basket, along with those of his most trusted followers. Years later, Pizarro himself reached Peru, and Balboa's deeds were forgotten. Interpretation Most men are ruled by the heart, not the head. Their plans are vague, and when they meet obstacles, they improvise. But improvisation will only bring you as far as the next crisis and is never a substitute for thinking several steps ahead and planning to the end. Balboa had a dream of glory and wealth and a vague plan to reach it. Yet his bold deeds and his discovery of the Pacific are largely forgotten, for he committed what in the world of power is the ultimate sin. He went part way, leaving the door open for others to take over. A real man of power would have had the prudence to see the dangers in the distance, the rivals who would want to share in the conquests, the vultures that would hover once they heard the word gold. Balboa should have kept his knowledge of the Inca's secret until after he had conquered Peru. Only then would his wealth and his head have been secure. Once Padrarius arrived on the scene, a man of power and prudence would have schemed to kill or imprison him and to take over the army he had brought for the conquest of Peru. But Balboa was locked in the moment, always reacting emotionally, never thinking ahead what good is it to have the greatest dream in the world if others reap the benefits and the glory never lose your head over a vague open-ended dream plan to the end keys to power most people believe that they are in fact aware of the future that they are planning and thinking ahead they are usually deluded what they are really doing is succumbing to their desires to what they want the future to be. Their plans are vague, based on their imaginations, rather than their reality. They may believe they are thinking all the way to the end, but they are really only focusing on the happy ending and deluding themselves by the strength of their desire. The ending is everything. It is the end of the action that determines who gets the glory, the money, the prize. Your conclusion must be crystal clear, and you must keep it constantly in mind. You must also figure out how to ward off the vultures circling overhead, trying to live off the carcass of your creation, and you must anticipate the many possible crises that will tempt you to improvise. When you see several steps ahead and plan your moves all the way to the end, You will no longer be tempted by emotion or by the desire to improvise. Your clarity will rid you of the anxiety and vagueness that are the primary reasons why so many fail to conclude their actions successfully. You see the ending, and you tolerate no deviation. Law 30. Make your accomplishments seem effortless. Judgment. Your actions must seem natural and executed with ease. All the toil and practice that go into them, and also all the clever tricks, must be concealed. When you act, act effortlessly as if you could do much more. Avoid the temptation of revealing how hard you work. It only raises questions. "'Teach no one your tricks, or they will be used against you.'" Observance of the Law The great escape artist Harry Houdini once advertised his act as, "'The impossible possible,' and indeed those who witnessed his dramatic escapes felt that what he did on stage contradicted common-sense ideas of human capacity. Over the years, Houdini escaped from the chained carcass of an embalmed sea monster, a half-octopus, half-whale-like beast that had beached near Boston. He had himself sealed inside an enormous envelope from which he emerged without breaking the paper. He passed through brick walls. He wriggled free from straitjackets while dangling high in the air. He leaped from bridges into icy waters, his hands manacled and his legs in chains, He had himself submerged in glass cases full of water, hands padlocked, while the audience watched in amazement as he worked himself free, struggling for close to an hour, apparently without breathing. Each time he seemed to court certain death, yet survived with superhuman aplomb. Meanwhile, he said nothing about his methods gave no clues as to how he accomplished any of his tricks. He left his audiences and critics speculating, his power and reputation enhanced by their struggles with the inexplicable. Perhaps the most baffling trick of all was making a 10,000-pound elephant disappear before an audience's eyes, a feat he repeated on stage for over 19 weeks. No one has ever really explained how he did this, For in the auditorium where he performed the trick, there was simply nowhere for an elephant to hide. The effortlessness of Houdini's escapes led some to think he used occult forces, his superior psychic abilities giving him special control over his body. But a German escape artist named Kleppini claimed to know Houdini's secret. He simply used elaborate gadgets. Clopini also claimed to have defeated Houdini in a handcuff challenge in Holland. Houdini did not mind all kinds of speculation floating around about his methods, but he would not tolerate an outright lie, and in 1902, he challenged Clopini to a handcuff duel. Clopini accepted. Through a spy, he found out the secret word to unlock a pair of French combination lock cuffs that Houdini liked to use. His plan was to choose these cuffs to escape from on stage. This would definitely debunk Houdini. His genius simply lay in his use of mechanical gadgets. On the night of the challenge, just as Clopini had planned, Houdini offered him a choice of cuffs and he selected the ones with the combination lock. He was even able to disappear with them behind a screen to make a quick test and re-emerged, seconds later, confident of victory. Acting as if he had sensed fraud, Houdini refused to lock Clopini in the cuffs. The two men argued and began to fight, even wrestling with each other on stage. After a few minutes of this, an apparently angry, frustrated Houdini gave up and locked Clopini in the cuffs. For the next few minutes, Clopini strained to get free. Something was wrong. Minutes earlier, he had opened the cuffs behind the screen. Now, the same code no longer worked. He sweated, racking his brain. Hours went by. The audience left. And finally, an exhausted and humiliated Clapini gave up and asked to be released. The cuffs that Clapini himself had opened behind the screen with the word C-L-E-F-S, French for keys now clicked open only with the word F-R-A-U-D. Clopini never figured out how Houdini had accomplished this uncanny feat. Interpretation Although we do not know for certain how Houdini accomplished many of his most ingenious escapes, one thing is clear. It was not the occult or any kind of magic that gave him his powers, but hard work and endless practice, all of which he carefully concealed from the world. Houdini never left anything to chance. Day and night, he studied the workings of locks, researched centuries-old sleight-of-hand tricks, pored over books on mechanics, whatever he could use. Every moment not spent researching, he spent working his body, keeping himself exceptionally limber, and learning how to control his muscles and his breathing. Early on in Houdini's career, An old Japanese performer whom he toured with taught him an ancient trick, how to swallow an ivory ball, then bring it back up. He practiced this endlessly with a small peeled potato tied to a string. Up and down, he would manipulate the potato with his throat muscles until they were strong enough to move it without the string. No one could check the inside of his throat, where he could conceal small tools to help him escape. Even so, Clappini was fundamentally wrong. It was not Houdini's tools, but his practice, work, and research that made his escapes possible. Clappini, in fact, was completely outwitted by Houdini, who set the whole thing up. He let his opponent learn the code to the French cuffs, then baited him into choosing those cuffs on stage. Then... During the two men's tussle, the dexterous Houdini was able to change the code to FRAUD. He had spent weeks practicing this trick, but the audience saw none of the sweat and toil behind the scenes. Nor was Houdini ever nervous. He induced nervousness in others. He deliberately dragged out the time it would take to escape as a way of heightening the drama and making the audience squirm. His escapes from death always graceful and easy, made him look like a superman. As a person of power, you must research and practice endlessly before appearing in public, on stage, or anywhere else. Never expose the sweat and labor behind your poise. Some think such exposure will demonstrate their diligence and honesty, but it actually just makes them look weaker as if anyone who practiced and worked at it could do what they had done, or as if they weren't really up to the job. Keep your effort and your tricks to yourself, and you seem to have the grace and ease of a god. One never sees the source of a god's power revealed. One only sees its effects. Keys to Power In the Book of the Courtier, published in 1528, Baldassare Castiglione describes the highly elaborate and codified manners of the perfect court citizen. And yet, Castiglione explains the courtier must execute these gestures with what he calls sprezzatura, the capacity to make the difficult seem easy. He urges the courtier to practice in all things a certain nonchalance which conceals all artistry and makes whatever one says or does seem uncontrived and effortless. We all admire the achievement of some unusual feat, but if it is accomplished naturally and gracefully, our admiration increases tenfold. Whereas, To labor at what one is doing and to make bones over it shows an extreme lack of grace and causes everything, whatever it's worth, to be discounted. The idea of sprezzatura is relevant to all forms of power, for power depends vitally on appearances and the illusions you create. Your public actions are like artworks. They must have visual appeal, must create anticipation even entertain. When you reveal the inner workings of your creation, you become just one more mortal among others. What is understandable is not awe-inspiring. We tell ourselves we could do as well if we had the money and time. Avoid the temptation of showing how clever you are. It is far more clever to conceal the mechanisms of your cleverness. There is another reason for concealing your shortcuts and tricks. When you let this information out, you give people ideas they can use against you. You lose the advantages of keeping silent. We tend to want the world to know what we have done. We want our vanity gratified by having our hard work and cleverness applauded. And we may even want sympathy for the hours it has taken to reach our point of artistry. Learn to control this propensity to blab, for its effect is often the opposite of what you expected. Remember, the more mystery surrounds your actions, the more awesome your power seems. You appear to be the only one who can do what you do, and the appearance of having an exclusive gift is immensely powerful. Finally, because you achieve your accomplishments with grace and ease, People believe that you could always do more if you tried harder. This elicits not only admiration, but a touch of fear. Your powers are untapped. No one can fathom their limits. Law 31. Control the options. Get others to play with the cards you deal. Judgment. The best deceptions are the ones that seem to give the other person a choice. Your victims feel they are in control, but are actually your puppets. Give people options that come out in your favor, whichever one they choose. Force them to make choices between the lesser of two evils, both of which serve your purpose. Put them on the horns of a dilemma. They are gored wherever they turn. Observance of the law. From early in his reign, Ivan IV, later known as Ivan the Terrible, had to confront an unpleasant reality. The country desperately needed reform, but he lacked the power to push it through. The greatest limit to his authority came from the boyars, the Russian princely class that dominated the country and terrorized the peasantry. In 1553, at the age of 23, Ivan fell ill. Lying in bed, nearing death, he asked the boyars to swear allegiance to his son as the new czar. Some hesitated, some even refused. Then and there, Ivan saw he had no power over the boyars. He recovered from his illness, but he never forgot the lesson. The boyars were out to destroy him, and indeed, in the years to come, Many of the most powerful of them defected to Russia's main enemies, Poland and Lithuania, where they plotted their return and the overthrow of the Tsar. Even one of Ivan's closest friends, Prince Andrei Kirbsky, suddenly turned against him, defecting to Lithuania in 1564 and becoming the strongest of Ivan's enemies. When Kirbsky began raising troops for an invasion, The royal dynasty seemed suddenly more precarious than ever. With émigré nobles fomenting invasion from the west, tartars bearing down from the east, and the boyars stirring up trouble within the country, Russia's vast size made it a nightmare to defend. In whatever direction Ivan struck, he would leave himself vulnerable on the other side. Only if he had absolute power could he deal with this many-headed hydra, and he had no such power. Ivan brooded until the morning of December 3, 1564, when the citizens of Moscow awoke to a strange sight. Hundreds of sleds filled the square before the Kremlin, loaded with the Tsar's treasures and with provisions for the entire court. They watched in disbelief as the Tsar and his court boarded the sleds and left town. Without explaining why, he established himself in a village south of Moscow. For an entire month, a kind of terror gripped the capital, for the Muscovites feared that Ivan had abandoned them to the bloodthirsty boyars. Shops closed up, and riotous mobs gathered daily. Finally, on January 3rd of 1565, a letter arrived from the Tsar explaining that he could no longer bear the boyars' betrayals and had decided to abdicate once and for all. Read aloud in public, the letter had a startling effect. Merchants and commoners blamed the boyars for Ivan's decision and took to the streets, terrifying the nobility with their fury. Soon a group of delegates representing the church, the princes, and the people made the journey to Ivan's village and begged the czar, in the name of the Holy Land of Russia, to return to the throne. Ivan listened, but would not change his mind. After days of hearing their pleas, however, he offered his subjects a choice. Either they grant him absolute powers to govern as he pleased, with no interference from the boyars, or they find a new leader. Faced with a choice between civil war and the acceptance of despotic power, Almost every sector of Russian society opted for a strong czar, calling for Ivan's return to Moscow and the restoration of law and order. In February, with much celebration, Ivan returned to Moscow. The Russians could no longer complain if he behaved dictatorially. They had given him this power themselves. Interpretation Withdrawal and disappearance are classic ways of controlling the options. You give people a sense of how things will fall apart without you, and you offer them a choice. I stay away, and you suffer the consequences, or I return under circumstances that I dictate. In this method of controlling people's options, they choose the option that gives you power because the alternative is just too unpleasant. You force their hand, but indirectly. They seem to have a choice. Whenever people feel they have a choice, they walk into your trap that much more easily. Keys to power. Words like freedom, options, and choice evoke a power of possibility far beyond the reality of the benefits they entail. When examined closely, the choices we have in the marketplace, in elections, in our jobs, tend to have noticeable limitations. They are often a matter of a choice simply between A and B, with the rest of the alphabet out of the picture. Yet, as long as the faintest mirage of choice flickers on, we rarely focus on the missing options. We choose to believe that the game is fair and that we have our freedom. We prefer not to think too much about the depth of our liberty to choose. This supplies the clever and cunning with enormous opportunities for deception. For people who are choosing between alternatives find it hard to believe they are being manipulated or deceived. They cannot see that you are allowing them a small amount of free will in exchange for a much more powerful imposition of your own will. Setting up a narrow range of choices, then, should always be a part of your deceptions. There is a saying. If you can get the bird to walk into the cage on its own, it will sing that much more prettily. The following are among the most common forms of controlling the options. Color the Choices This was a favored technique of Henry Kissinger. As President Nixon's Secretary of State, Kissinger considered himself better informed than his boss and believed that in most situations he could make the best decision on his own. But if he tried to determine policy, he would offend, or perhaps enrage, a notoriously insecure man. So Kissinger would propose three or four choices of action for each situation, and would present them in such a way that the one he preferred always seemed the best solution compared to the others. Time after time, Nixon fell for the bait, never suspecting that he was moving where Kissinger pushed him, This is an excellent device to use on the insecure master. Force the resistor. This is a good technique to use on children and other willful people who enjoy doing the opposite of what you ask them to. Push them to choose what you want them to do by appearing to advocate the opposite. Alter the playing field. In the 1860s, John D. Rockefeller set out to create an oil monopoly. If he tried to buy up the smaller oil companies, they would figure out what he was doing and fight back. Instead, he began secretly buying up the railway companies that transported the oil. When he then attempted to take over a particular company and met with resistance, he reminded them of their dependence on the rails. Refusing them shipping or simply raising their fees could ruin their business. Rockefeller altered the playing field so that the only options the small oil producers had were the ones he gave them. In this tactic, your opponents know their hand is being forced, but it doesn't matter. The technique is effective against those who resist at all costs. The shrinking options. The late 19th century art dealer Ambrose Vollard perfected this technique. Customers would come to Vallard's shop to see some Cezannes. He would show three paintings, neglect to mention a price, and pretend to doze off. The visitors would have to leave without deciding. They would usually come back the next day to see the paintings again, but this time Vallard would pull out less interesting works, pretending he thought they were the same ones. The baffled customers would look at the new offerings, leave to think them over, and return yet again. Once again, the same thing would happen. Volar would show paintings of lesser quality still. Finally, the buyers would realize they had better grab what he was showing them because tomorrow they would have to settle for something worse, perhaps at even higher prices. A variation on this technique is to raise the price every time the buyer hesitates and another day goes by. This is an excellent negotiating ploy to use on the chronically indecisive who will fall for the idea that they are getting a better deal today than if they wait till tomorrow. The weak man on the precipice. The weak are the easiest to maneuver by controlling their options. Cardinal de Retz, the great 17th century provocateur, served as an unofficial assistant to the Duke of Orleans, who was notoriously indecisive. It was a constant struggle to convince the duke to take action. He would hem and haw weigh the options and wait until the last moment, giving everyone around him an ulcer. But Retz discovered a way to handle them. He would describe all sorts of dangers, exaggerating them as much as possible, until the duke saw a yawning abyss in every direction except one, the one Retz was pushing him to take. This tactic is similar to color the choices, but with the weak, you have to be more aggressive. Work on their emotions, use fear and terror to propel them into action. Try reason, and they will always find a way to procrastinate. The Horns of a Dilemma This idea was demonstrated by General William Sherman's infamous march through Georgia during the American Civil War. Although the Confederates knew what direction Sherman was heading in, they never knew if he would attack from the left or the right, for he divided his army into two wings, and if the rebels retreated from one wing, they found themselves facing the other. This is a classic trial lawyer's technique. The lawyer leads the witness to decide between two possible explanations of an event, both of which poke a hole in their story. They have to answer the lawyer's questions But whatever they say, they hurt themselves. The key to this move is to strike quickly, deny the victim the time to think of an escape. As they wriggle between the horns of the dilemma, they dig their own grave. Understand, in your struggles with your rivals, it will often be necessary for you to hurt them. And if you are clearly the agent of their punishment, expect a counterattack, expect revenge. If, however, they seem to themselves to be the agents of their own misfortune, they will submit quietly. When Ivan left Moscow for his rural village, the citizens asking him to return agreed to his demand for absolute power. Over the years to come, they resented him less for the terror he unleashed on the country, because, after all, they had granted him his power themselves. This is why it is always good to allow your victims their choice of poison and to cloak your involvement in providing it to them as far as possible.